everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rurkraut. And today we have our year-end wrap-up episode. We will be talking about 2021 as a movie year, counting down our top five favorite films of the year, doing some fun end-of-year superlatives, and our annual top five hottest characters list. Yeah, I can't believe this is our last episode of 2021. We've seen so many movies this year, and I'm excited to get to all of our lists and have fun with talking about our favorites in many different ways. (laughs) Truly. So I think just what was 2021 like for you as a moviegoer? I know we'll get to like standout experiences, but if you had to just describe what your time back at the movies was like. Probably overall was a bit chaotic. We were still watching some movies at home really big ones we were going to the Mm -hmm. theaters for and I think audiences were yeah not ready to be surrounded by a bunch of other people again movies where it's like why don't I just watch everything at home on my tv where it's quiet where I don't have to hear people chewing and phones going off and lights it's just like crazy but I think that being said I do love being back in the theater being able to buy my tickets early, pick the Dolby, pick the IMAX theater, and getting to see things in huge, huge screens again. I'm definitely very happy to be back. What about you? So much of 2020 was just a time warp for me. Like I look back on that year and cannot remember specific months or days like when I watched a particular movie. And most of the movies that I watched in 2020 were a lot quieter. They were either comfort rewatches or they were really small films that I watched at home. Like in the case of Nomadland or Minari or Sound of Metal, like a lot of those movies feel so different than a lot of the movies that we'll talk about this Oscar season and that we'll talk about today. I think also it was funny because so much of the beginning of our year was talking about the last Oscar season. And of course, we'll be doing a good portion of that in 2022. But yeah, I think I was more ready than ever before to just jump into a new season of movies. A lot of these were made by some of our favorite directors. So getting to see them kind of back at the wheel again, giving us brand new stuff was really exciting. So I think we religiously keep track of everything that we watch on Letterboxd. So I was curious, I think, just like how many movies you watched were most of them 2021 releases. What does your like year end Spotify wrapped but letterboxed version <laughs> look like? I do love that letterboxed keeps track of everything. And mm-hmm. this is all the same stuff we talked about on last year's episode, but listing our highest rated films from this year or from previous years, how many movies you watched by week, which... You probably don't want to know my numbers for. Mm -mm, Me either. That's going to be a secret, secret number. (laughs) And yeah, our breakdown. So from 2021, and I don't think this number is right because I rewatched the Mitchells versus the Machines today and this number went up. So it is counting rewatches, but I'm at 95 right now, which is slightly higher than last year. I think mine was in the 80s. I'm at 123. For 2021 releases, I think I can attribute a lot of that to festivals, Mm -hmm. but I am a big rewatcher. I will say that because my rewatches, wow. Well, yeah, from that second pie chart, what's your percentage? 42% of my watches are rewatches. So I really love going back and revisiting movies that I've seen before. I think I might still be in that part of, you know, it was another hard year. Love returning to the movies I Mm -hmm. 
enjoy. My highest rated actors were Cary Grant and Shelley Duvall, which means I was spending a lot of time in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Primarily with like Robert Altman, George Cukor, Hitchcock, people like that. So I think that says a lot about my watching behavior for sure. Yeah, and I am not a rewatcher, which I know and I'm okay with. I'm at 13% for rewatches. And my most watched stars, I have a three-way tie for number one with five films each. Tony Collette, Maya Rudolph, and Adam Driver, which you would be happy to know. I'm surprised (laughs) he made mine. (laughs) Yeah, he didn't make mine. My top two were Frances McDormand and Tilda Swinton. (laughs) (laughs) Love them too. Which I think means I've been watching a lot of Cohen and Wes Anderson Mm -hmm. movies this year, but... Yeah, I'm proud of you for having Adam Driver. Maybe he'll come up a little bit later. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure he will. (laughs) And then getting into some movies that we haven't seen. So when we're doing our top fives here, you know, if you don't hear these names, this is why. And if you really think we should see them or put them on our list, let us know. But some of the movies that I have yet to see that were released this year are Parallel Mothers. That's at the top of my list. It is out limited, so I need to go every marvel movie except black widow so that's spider-man no way home i literally can't even name them all um eternals shang chi and eternals yes those three and then red rocket and last night in soho Ooh. okay i'm most curious for your opinion on red rocket and for me i have not seen spider-man no way home either i feel like i'm waiting for the theaters to calm down a little bit it's a little crazy i feel like with omicron and like the surge in numbers especially in new york i'm just like everyone is still going to see spider-man and i just need to wait on that one i was like oh i'll treat myself i'll go to a big theater and see spider-man christmas day and it was the imax theater the entire theater was sold out except for one seat in the smack dab middle and i was so close to taking it and i was like Uh absolutely not not how things are right now Yeah, so I'm still waiting on that. I have not seen Matrix Resurrections yet. I haven't seen a single Matrix film. I haven't seen any of them, yeah. So (laughs) So, I would not start with this one. I will say that. Okay. I know. I do need to watch The Matrix. That is like my biggest, one of my biggest movie blind spots. I thought I had seen it years ago. I have not. So I will make a point to watch it. My one point on this, because this is not showing up anywhere for me today. So if that says enough about how I feel about it, but I'm scared that they're going to start another trilogy with this movie huh well they probably will yeah honestly yeah (laughs) the other movie that i haven't seen yet is cyrano (laughs) which we've kind of joked about all year but i don't know when i'm going to see this i don't know where it's coming out i haven't seen any showtimes for it i it wasn't at any of the film festivals that i went to this year so it just has evaded me but i'm very curious about it so it will not appear on any of my lists today i think it comes out new year's eve Um, I haven't seen it either, so I think we just have to force each other to go see this together. (laughs) We can go on New Year's Eve. (laughs) Oh, my God. So let's get into our honorable mentions. So these are movies I think that we really liked, but we're just outside of our top five. You might be surprised that they're not included on our lists. My movies that I have here, The Green Knight, we talked about this on one of our episodes. I love this movie. I thought that the craft work was incredible just the the sound design the visual effects the makeup and hairstyling absolutely love the cinematography the performances it was one of the treats i think of the summer 
Another one for me, West Side Story. I really enjoyed West Side Story a lot. Definitely check out our episode with Connor and Dylan McDowell of the Drama Podcast. We had a lot of fun on the episode. And my last one, I think, which will probably surprise the most people that it's not in my top five, is actually The Tragedy of Macbeth. I loved this movie. It was just pure porn for someone like me who loves Shakespeare and loves beautiful movies. I am still thinking about a lot of the shots in it, the performances, especially from Catherine Hunter and Francis McDormand. Even if you don't love Shakespeare, it's an experience. I would love to talk about this movie more when it comes out. I don't know how much it's going to be in the conversation this year. I really hope it kind of makes a resurgence, but Mm -hmm. absolutely loved it. Just phenomenal work from solo Joel Cohen. I did also really like Tragedy of Macbeth. It's not in my top five or my honorables, but it is a really good movie. I do recommend everyone see it. In my honorables, I also have The Green Knight. And with my other two, we have talked about these on previous podcasts. One is No Time to Die, the final Daniel Craig, James Bond film, which was just a riot and adventure. So thrilling. And that was probably the most fun experience I had at the movies this year. I think we will be seeing that going into award season a little bit, which is exciting. And we did talk about this last week on our episode with Bennett Prosser talking about award season and how it's stacking up so far. Um, And my other one is King Richard, which we also did a podcast on in conjunction with Belfast. And I was very emotional during this movie. I think it, it does a really good job of telling you the story about the Williams sisters and how they got into tennis, but also talking about the entire family and how their dad, King Richard, played by Will Smith, influenced their journey and helped them along the way. And, you know, Anjanou Ellis in there too. Again, all these things I've said on this podcast. So go listen to that. Yeah, I think three good movies and I'm excited to get to our top fives now. So how about you kick us off? What is your number five? My number five is Come On, Come On. It's a film by Mike Mills. I think we've probably briefly talked about every movie that I'll mention today, but quick description here. When his sister asks him to look after her son, a radio journalist embarks on a cross-country trip with his energetic nephew to show him life away from Los Angeles. It stars Joaquin Phoenix, Woody Norman, and Gabby Hoffman. So in the movie, Joaquin is Gabby's brother, and Joaquin and Woody are going on this journey from LA to New York, and... You have Joaquin and then you have this nine-year-old and I think they're talking about life and their perspectives and also Joaquin's character is recording these kids around the country and how they feel about their futures. And those experiences were genuine. Um, They actually recorded those. And after a screening at the New York Film Festival where we saw this, Mike and Joaquin were talking about that experience, which I think added to why that hit me so hard during the movie. I mean, like just sobbing from how hopeful these kids are, but also seeing the reality. And all of these performances were so genuine. I loved Joaquin. You know, he came back for me from Joker. (laughs) I think Gabby, she's great in everything she does. I loved her in Transparent as well, the TV show. And Woody's a newcomer. And, you know, he's getting some attention along the way too for new stars. And I think that's great. He's so mature, but so young. And Everything just seemed effortless. There's a lot of personality packed into this movie, and there's a scene towards the end that just like tore me apart, and I love that. How did you feel about Come On, Come On? Because you haven't mentioned it either. I know, and it's weird because it should be in my honorable mentions. I think I just didn't put it there because I knew you were going to talk about it, and I would get to talk about (laughs) it a little bit here. But I really loved this movie. It worked on me too. I 
found it to be like the warmest movie of the year. I thought it had a lot of empathy in it. I love how they shoot New York. It's so beautiful in it. And I love the LA to New York to New Orleans, how they travel in the movie. And I don't know. I like the way that it's shot in black and white. And Mike Mills talked about this when we saw him at the Q&A. It made it feel more like a fairy tale or a fable. And I thought that that was a really unique point of view to have and a reason why you wanted to shoot it in black and white so Mm -hmm. i think it's a gorgeous movie i wish it was around more in the awards conversation but i think we both highly recommend it Mm -hmm. so what is your number five okay so may we start talking about my number five (laughs) um 2021 will always be the year that i went to the Cannes film festival and the first movie that i ever got to see at Cannes is taking my number five spot, and that is Annette. I know it's polarizing. I completely get if people don't like it. If someone tells me after listening to this or after listening to our episode back in August when we talked about Annette that they didn't like it, I'll be like, okay, that's fine. But I think this year I just wanted something really different, and I had never seen anything as unapologetically bonkers and out there as Annette. And I'll take that over the vanilla IP fluff we get any day. You know, I think so many movies we get today are just the same, right? It's a sequel or it's a spinoff or it's this property we know. Annette is totally new and has a puppet baby. And nothing made me laugh harder this year than baby Annette is a baby after all. <laughs> I think So I think part of my reason for listing it here is just because... Seeing it there, it made me cry. It made me feel like I was like alive again and like back in a movie theater again and getting to have these, you know, really amazing experiences. I will always be happy that Annette was the first movie I've ever seen at Cannes. <laughs> it's more than the memes to me, but the memes are good enough. <laughs> it was definitely the weirdest movie I'd seen this mm-hmm. year. Leo's Carex really brought it. I think for me, his previous Holy Motors is still like top tier. And I love that more than Annette. But Annette is definitely very memorable. Even though I didn't love it as much as you did, there are shots that will be ingrained into my brain forever. So thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Any rock opera with Adam Driver and a puppet and Marion Cotillard signed me up. But I really feel like this is the only one we'll ever get. So... (laughs) Not exactly a reliable I think so, yeah. Property. <laughs> <laughs> and it is on Prime right now. So if you want to watch it, it's there. Let me know what you think of it. I will not be offended if you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> and my number four is going to be on Netflix on New Year's Eve. And this is The Lost Daughter, directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. She's been getting a lot of good awards attention this year, too. I think she's won a few for First Feature and then some of the cast as well. So it stars Olivia Coleman, Jesse Buckley, Dakota Johnson, and Ed Harris. Description, a women's beach vacation takes a dark turn when she begins to confront the troubles of her past. So I think this is on my top five because it really surprised me. I didn't expect it to be this slow burn, but once I started understanding what was happening, I was completely enthralled and I loved what Olivia does I mean I always do that's no question Mm -hmm. there but I loved the flashbacks to Jesse Buckley which is her younger self and the story that they're telling about mothers I think this year there are a lot of movies about parenting a lot of movies that make me not want to have kids just yet Mm -hmm. or maybe ever we'll see but it's fascinating how complex this character is and I think Maggie did an amazing job with 
translating this story from page to screen and taking what Elena Ferrante wrote. I loved all these characters. I think Jesse Buckley deserves so much attention, even though her character was very supporting, but she especially is very nuanced. And once it flips, everything just came full circle for me very quickly. And I loved feeling that like, you know, the last puzzle piece fit and I could see the entire picture. And what they were saying about the female experience and also as a mother, I think I just learned a lot from watching these women on screen act, but also, you know, seeing how Maggie Gyllenhaal captured everything on screen. I think it was just put together so well and it really didn't feel at any point like anybody's first movie. So I I applaud everybody in this cast and crew. Yeah, I think that's what stood out to me the most was that Maggie Gyllenhaal, I think, felt very self-assured as a filmmaker. It didn't feel at all like a first-time feature. I will admit, when I was watching this, I was very scared that you weren't going to like it just because of the pacing of it. And I know Mm -hmm. sometimes, like, you don't love slow burns. But I think, like, Olivia and Jesse, their performances really, I think, sold this and make it, I will say, like a thrilling watch. It is slower, but there is a lot to hang on to and mm-hmm. that will take you from one thing to the next. And it is a pretty complex character study. It's funny because your number five, Come On, Come On, made me want to have children. And your number four, The Lost Daughter, made me pretty much tell myself I would never have them. So... <laughs> You're right in saying that you have a lot of different movies here about like parents and kids. Mm -hmm. And there are things that happen that are just so unexpected. I also love that in a movie like that is a checked box when you don't see anything coming. And there are multiple things. There's a scene when Olivia is at a bar and she just does something that you love to see Olivia Coleman do. But it's like, oh my God. So you're you're waiting. You want to see what they're going to do next. And... I think where this movie ends, it just is very, very impactful. I will definitely be rewatching this when it comes out. I'm excited to rewatch it too. My number four is your number three. So we can talk about this one together. And that is Joaquin Trier's The Worst Person in the World. I love this movie. I really just care about it deeply, mostly because of Renata Reinsva's performance as our main character, Julie. But this movie is about this woman in her late 20s. She is kind of just floating through life. She's very indecisive. She is kind of working through her love life and her different relationships. She's struggling to kind of find the right career path for her, figure out where she's going to go next. And I loved it so much. I am dying to rewatch this one as well. And I don't think it's out until February, like maybe limited in (sighs) January, but I'm like, uh, I need it. It's currently at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Amazing. Trier calls it the rom-com for people who hate rom-coms. And I think that's why I loved it. It can be cutesy, but it's not over the top, like super sappy or saccharine, which I really like. He also said about the title, the worst person in the world. It's a bit self-deprecating, but it's also somewhat ironic. And he was hoping that would translate, even though this is a Norwegian film. And I think it does. I really liked how it's about Julie's exploration of her life and her life's meaning and also about self-love and love in relationships. And it gets very real at times. And I think also being 30, like that's also why I connected with it and enjoyed Mm -hmm. it. And there's a sequence here. I think that's kind of 
noting my top five is there is a very, very memorable sequence in each of these movies. And here it just, it blows you away. It has an amazing feeling to it and very thought provoking. It has a great balance of comedy and drama to it that made it feel to me like one of those mm -hmm. really good 70s movies like An Unmarried Woman where you have this complicated woman at the center and I haven't felt that protective of a character in a really long time. Part of it is as a brunette approaching 30 who is also going through it right now. I felt connected to her on a spiritual <laughs> level but other than that I think that the filmmaking it's very inventive but it doesn't have that like Netflix gloss over it that I think a mm -hmm. lot of rom-coms have. It feels very European. There's also a monologue by Anders Danielson Lee, who plays Axel, who's one of Julie's boyfriends, kind of her like central romance in the story that will stay with me, honestly, forever. That was when I was really sobbing, just mm -hmm. when he's talking about like what it's like being in your 20s and then you grow wow. up. Ugh. <sighs> I'm rooting for it in Best International Feature. Oh, yeah, I am too. So I guess since that was my number three, what is your number three? My number three is a movie I haven't talked about this entire year on our show, which is so weird because I feel like we've talked about everything, but it's Mia Hansen Loves Bergman Island. This movie I just went to see one afternoon after work. It was playing at IFC, and I was like, oh, Vicky Crepes. I missed it at Cannes. I missed it in New York. I was like, I have to see my dear Alma. What is she doing? I need to go see her in this movie. But I didn't really have any expectations going into it. And I was just floored. It was one of those movies that I just didn't see coming. And I felt connected to it almost where I was like, Mia Hands in Love has read my text messages. She has been in therapy with me before. <laughs> Like, she knows me. Mm. I can probably count on one hand how many times I've had that experience after seeing a movie. But because we haven't talked about it, I'm, like, getting way ahead of myself. But basically, Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth, they play this couple. They're filmmakers, and they're going to Faroe, this island um, where Bergman lived and shot a lot of his movies. And they're going there because they want to find inspiration for their upcoming movies. And as time passes, we get to see how men and women who are filmmakers are treated very differently and how they're viewed very differently. You know, she's just kind of out and about traveling around looking for inspiration. He's celebrated. He's hosting Q&As. People want to meet him. And as they're going through their experiences and they're working on their new projects, all of a sudden we get this movie within a movie with Anders Danielson Lee from The Worst Person in the World and Mia Wasikowska. And this fascinating thing happens all of a sudden where reality and fiction are totally blurred and Chris, our Vicky Creeps character, it doesn't really matter that Tony, the Tim Roth character, isn't listening to her. He seems a little dismissive, like he might not be paying attention to what she has to say when she's talking about her idea for her new movie. And the reason why it doesn't matter is because Mia Hansen Love is saying, he might not listen, but my audience has to. My audience has to because I'm going to show you what is in her head. This relationship between this young couple and it just seems to just take on this brand new form. And I thought that was really, really cool. And I love this movie. I've only seen it once. The reason I've only watched it once is because it was really painful for me to watch. It felt like it was holding my pocket of pain. And I hmm. don't know when I'm going to revisit it, but I mm -hmm. loved it very much. Hmm. Fascinating. 
I haven't seen this. I think we briefly discussed this before, but I would go see it. I probably shouldn't watch this at home. It's it's not like slow, though. I don't think. Okay. I also don't, I don't think I know how you feel about Bergman. I'm scared to ask. I think you kind of do. I mean, it's tough for me. I feel like we briefly talked about this when, I don't know what year that was, but Cries and Whispers. Okay. Best Picture Nom. Because I watched that from my Criterion Challenge. It's a beautiful movie. He knows what he's doing, framing a shot, but I have trouble with it staying focused with his stories because they are very character study Uh and it's a lot of like 60s, 70s. Yeah, so this would have been the year that The Exorcist was nominated. So we might have talked about it then. Yeah, it it is similar to Bergman films in that way and that it, it is a character study very much so and it's it gets very, very painful. And I love Bergman movies, so I'm not surprised, I guess, that this connected to me. But it did feel more humble. And now I really will watch like any Mia Hansen love movie forever. Also, amazing performances from Vicky Creeps and Mia Wasikowska. And a perfect final shot. I love the final shot, too. <laughs> okay, I'll let you know when I check it out. Oh, I'm scared. You don't need to. It's okay. (laughs) So my number two is one we've talked about and one that was on your honorable mention. It's West Side Story. I'm really not going to say much about these final two. So just go listen to our episode you mentioned with Connor and Dylan McDowell. It was a blast talking about this movie and I learned so much. I think with my experience watching this movie, I was so surprised, just blown away by the cinematography, by really every aspect. Spielberg did West Side Story, all the justice here, and it was a great time at the movies. I agree. I think that your number two and my number two, which I'll talk about, they made me feel like I'm back at the movies. Like, I know that sounds Mm -hmm. silly to say, but they felt like movie movies. I haven't felt that in a really long time. So I was very happy to feel that with West Side Story. And I think, too, with West Side Story, I had really low expectations. I was really scared to see what they were going to do with this movie. But I was pleasantly surprised um, and very impressed by it. So what's your number two? My number two, which I think people might think will be my number one, is Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. Oh my god. You know, I know I'm this PTA fangirl, and he did not let me down. We're not going to talk too much about Licorice Pizza today, because our next episode, we're going to go in-depth on it. We can discuss maybe what worked, what didn't work. But what I'll talk about, what I loved about it, is that every time a PTA movie comes out, I have to see it by myself for my first viewing. It has to just be this experience that I have with myself. And there was just something in the air when I went to see it. People there were so excited. People got to a 10.30 a.m. screening half an hour early when we had reserved seats. It was like people were just ready to see what he had come up with, what Alana Heim was capable of, what would Cooper Hoffman be like. That means you were one of those people. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) I was one of those people. This movie felt comfortable for him. It felt like he was kind of letting go, which I appreciate as someone who is so, I mean, he's so laser sharp, precise. I mean, especially if we're thinking about some of his recent movies, like There Will Be Blood and Phantom Thread. Nothing is wrong. Nothing is out of place. And here, I think that it feels like a memory. It feels like... A myth or a tall tale. It's like, what in this movie is real? What is fiction? 
what does truth mean? And PTA talks a lot about truth when he talks about these movies. But I think there's a lot here about the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that we tell others, and growing up. And PTA can direct the hell out of his actors. I mean, Cooper Hoffman, Alana Haim, they've never acted before. And here they are leading a film. And I love the way he uses movie stars in it, like flashes of them. Sean Penn, Bradley Cooper... Really, Mm -hmm. really fascinating stuff. I think that second half is when it starts to like really get a little dark. And I like when PTA films go there. So I love it. We'll talk about it more. Very, very happy that I got to see it and that I get to see it multiple times for the rest of my life. This will definitely be a good one for me to discuss. So I'm excited for next week because I think I have trouble putting together his movies sometimes. And like you said, all of these snippets of famous people and characters that come together and I'm like wait why is this happening or how so and I think rewatching it this week will help kind of digest it more and be able to break it down I loved Alana Haim in the lead I think she was incredible and especially for her first movie and watching her and Cooper's interactions it really is something that we don't really see much of in movies today like a genuine rom-com Like, I haven't moved that fast. Like, they're always running places, just, like, Mm -hmm. eager to get from one thing to the next. And there's this crucial tension right there. We'll get to the relationship and all of that next week. But, yeah, I mean, it just, it captures youth in such an interesting way. I love it. My man is back. He didn't let me down. Okay. Uh, We have our number ones. Mine is no surprise to anybody. (laughs) Neither is is mine. (laughs) We've been talking about these movies since the minute we saw them. Mine is Dune. <laughs> no drum roll needed. <laughs> no bagpipes? Are you sure? <laughs> if only Zimmer could score my entire life, I would love to see what he would come up with. I think what I talked about early on in the podcast, it's just, it's coming back to the movies. It's this really big experience and it's everything I wanted to see visually from Denis and... All of the components are there. I love the Zimmer score, all of the technical aspects, shooting on location, the actors. I mean, again, we've talked about this very much in depth on our episode. So go back and listen to that. I don't know if I have anything more to say. I've seen this three times, which is like a lot for me. But through every time I saw it, I was never bored. It never felt sluggish to me. And I really just lived in this world. And I'm excited for part two to come in a couple years. Yeah, I mean, Dune, I think was that movie that made you feel like, ooh, we're back at the movies. Everyone wants to go to this movie. Mm -hmm. Now it's obviously Spider-Man No Way Home. But I think Dune really did welcome everyone back. Mm -hmm. And there were so many doubts, I think, going into it, at least that I had. So definitely a movie I will think of when I think of the year. Like when I think of 2021, Mm -hmm. it will always be the year of Dune Part 1. Similarly for 2020, which is still Tenant for me. I think Tenant walked so Dune could run. And Dune ran so Spider-Man could sprint. And we'll see what comes in 2022. I think (laughs) the movies are getting bigger, which is exciting again. But yeah, I was very happy with this. And my number one will surprise no one because I talk about it every single day. I think about it every single day. (laughs) I tweet about it every single day. Um, And that is Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. I really don't even know what else I can say here. Considering I went on a soapbox for like an hour and a half talking about this movie for our episode, but 
I think what has continued to impress me about this movie now that I've rewatched it even more is on our episode, I described Jane Campion as a tactile filmmaker, how close she is to her objects, how you can feel what the other characters are touching almost. She's that type of filmmaker. But I think what I respect about her even more than that is that she trusts us. I think so many filmmakers today don't trust their audiences to fill in the blanks, to fill in those gaps. And she's saying, I'm not going to hold your hand. I'm going to give you this piece of art. And how great can that be if you find your way on your own? And I I love that Mm -hmm. about her. And I love this movie. I hope it wins every Oscar, but also I'm going to acknowledge that Oscars are not always an indicator of quality. So if it doesn't, that's why. But if it does, they are a measure of quality. So (laughs) (laughs) anyway, go watch The Power of the Dog on Netflix. I love it. When will I stop talking about it? Who knows? Okay, so there were five. Just to run through them really quickly before we move on to some fun categories. My five were from five to one. Come on, come on. The Lost Daughter, The Worst Person in the World, West Side Story, and Dune. And my five, five to one, are Annette, The Worst Person in the World, Bergman Island, Licorice Pizza, and The Power of the Dog. So getting started with some superlatives, and we can go through these really quickly, but starting off, our favorite film festival experience. My favorite film festival experience, I have two actually, I'm just going to say both. Going to the world premiere of Benedetta at Cannes was absolutely insane. Being in the same room as Paul Verhoeven, seeing old people walk out when the incredible prop is introduced. (laughs) (laughs) It's just what you hope for from a Cannes premiere. So that was amazing. Like getting to wear black tie, seeing Spike Lee, all of it just never going to happen to me again. So that one and meeting and like being Denis Villeneuve's volunteer person at new york film festival yeah he's really really nice and like getting to be there and see his excitement for everyone being excited about dune was Mm -hmm. really really cool and you know seeing him watch the end of the movie sitting behind him as this was happening is something i will definitely never forget i will say mine is seeing benedetta at the new york premiere as well it was my first movie at the festival I'm waiting in line. There was a church that was protesting outside with flags and bagpipes. And it was just a riot to see this happening. And then once we got in, they introduced the movie and we kind of like joked about the protesters. And I think starting out, everybody knew that this movie and what Verhoeven had created was kind of a farce. And it was a fun time and, Mm -hmm. you know, not something that was taken too seriously. And I think that's why it works so well. And the movie was great. You know, the audience was laughing and cheering together. So I think that made this experience special and fun and unforgettable. (laughs) Benedetta is an unforgettable movie. Similarly to Annette, I would say. Mm -hmm. In that I would understand if people didn't like Benedetta, but this one even more so than Annette. I would push them to see it. It's very good. Okay. What was your favorite first time watch this year that wasn't released in 2021? My favorite is The Red Shoes. Blew me away. I mentioned this when I saw it. This was like months ago now, but very close second is High and Low. Red Shoes is by Paulin Pressburger and High and Low is by Kurosawa. Both incredible movies. Very different. Probably would shock people to hear that I loved High and Low, but it's a technical feat. And I think the story is just amazing. 
Yeah, I have two. So one is a movie that I watched like early January for the Criterion Challenge, and that was All That Jazz. I had actually never seen it before. It is kind of the 70s staple, but it's really hard to find. It wasn't on any streaming. I couldn't find the DVD. Like I had to go to the library to get it. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved it. Bob Fosse knows how to capture movement like no one else. I love the Roy Scheider performance. We should talk about it one day on our show. It would be great. Mm -hmm. The other one is a movie that I had actually put off for years because when I see that, you know, a movie has won Best Picture or Best Director, a big Oscar like that, and it has a three-hour runtime, I'm likely to just say, like, "Eh, one day I'll get to it. But I was doing, like, a Diane Keaton year where I was watching a lot of her movies, and I had never seen Reds before, which Warren Beatty won Best Director for. In 1981, I committed and I was just so moved by it. It is this three plus hour epic. And today it would absolutely be like one of those HBO prestige drama series things some director Mm -hmm. makes. But it's kind of crazy and bold that Warren Beatty did this. It's this incredible document. It's not fully accurate, but Warren Beatty knows this and he leans into it. And I don't know. It's like no matter what we have in history, like how many documents we have, what is at the core of that stories and memories from real people. And Warren Beatty really seemed to understand that, both the danger and the beauty of that. And I loved this movie. It also was my favorite Jack Nicholson performance ever. So if you see Jack Nicholson is in this, don't again, I know you have trouble with him, but don't be worried about that. He's so good. Um, (laughs) Diane Keaton, I could have watched her for three more hours in this. I was very surprised, but I really loved it. Okay, what was your weirdest or funniest movie theater experience? Okay, so I have two here. I went to see Clifford the Big Red Dog in theaters, and I didn't realize that at 4 o'clock on a Friday, every child that lived in Brooklyn would be at my screening. <laughs> it was all children who maybe had never been told like how to behave in a theater, but they were like oh, no. running around, throwing candy. Oh, God. It was crazy, Um, but they really loved Clifford. I mean, I think it was prime condition to see that, I guess. The other one would be when I saw West Side Story. So this was after when I saw it with you. I saw it with my sister, and there was a woman sitting in front of us who every single time Rita Moreno came on screen, she took out her phone, which was at full brightness, and recorded Mm her. And if she would have been, like, right in front of me, I would have kind of, like, kicked her seat a little bit, like, stop. But she was just far enough away that I would have had to like get up and say something or but yeah, that was really strange. What about you? Oof. I think mine I talked about earlier on the pod. Thankfully haven't had something as crazy or bad as this since, but that was when I think they had been in my seat initially. Mm-hmm. So they had to move over and then these two guys took their shoes off, reclined, brought out this huge party sized bag of funyuns. And started eating them. And mind you, we're watching old. So part of me is like, get out of this movie theater. But then also part of me is like, this movie is so bad. Thank God the everyone is laughing in this theater. Mm-hmm. No one really cares because I was like, okay, great. We're just going to have fun and enjoy. But like those Funyuns were pungent. Yeah. Even under a mask. I was like, oh, I kind of want to <laughs> share, please. <laughs> okay. What was your least favorite movie of the year? You know, I do have like a bottom five for the year I know. <laughs> we could go through. But I think the worst movie, like the number one movie that should win at the Razzies is Don't Look Up. And people are 
very mixed on this, which is really surprising me. Like some people really love it. I don't understand. I had a friend who sent me a video snap. They were like midway in the movie and he goes in Netflix, goes to options, rating and thumbs down like mid movie. (laughs) I was like, yes, thank God. But this movie just made me angry. Like Mm -hmm. it's so in your face. It's way too elementary and what it's trying to say and how it's doing it. I was like, we don't need this. Like I understand that it's, you know, very pertinent to what we're going through and what we've gone through the past few years, but it's just so frustrating. Yeah. My answers don't look up too. This is the only movie of the year where I really considered walking out. And I think I would have if I wasn't at a guild screening. Like we went to a guild screening <laughs> yeah. for this. Honestly, and otherwise same. With a Q&A, so I was like, I have to be nice. I have to be respectful. And I've seen a lot of variations of this comment, but closest experience that I've had to watching Don't Look Up is when you're at a party or you're at a bar and a guy keeps telling you like all of his political opinions and you keep saying, I agree with you. I agree. But they keep going on and on and on and on anyway. (laughs) And I'm like, no, but you don't understand. Like, I agree with you. You don't need to tell me this. I agree. I agree. You don't need to hit me over the head. You don't need to make it, try to make it funny. I get it. (laughs) It's scary. This movie didn't have to be two and a half hours. It's a slog. If we were like half the length, it would be fun. I've realized I I can handle McKay more when he's telling me about things that have already happened versus things that he wants to tell me are going to happen. Mm hmm. I got it. I'm good. <laughs> Big short for me is a yes. This is a no, no, no. Okay, moving on slightly. What was your most disappointing movie of the year? So when I think of disappointing, I think of like, what did I have really high expectations of? And just it let mm-hmm. me down. And that was Spencer. I really wanted to like this movie, but the script was just so on the nose. And after seeing the Q&A... And hearing about it, I was like, oh, all the things in this movie that I didn't like were done on purpose. Cool. (laughs) And I think after Jackie, which I did really love, I was just kind of surprised that this one didn't work for me. So I will say Spencer. And you notice, like, we haven't talked about Don't Look Up. We haven't talked about Spencer on our show. I feel like I would just like to stay away from Mm -hmm. them. I still haven't seen Spencer either. I know I need to, but mostly for the score. You didn't like Jackie, though, right? No, it was just, well, it was a hard watch for me. And that's kind of what I expected here. So Mm -hmm. I do know I need to see it. But yeah, I guess not expecting a lot with this being here for you. Mm -hmm. My most disappointing movie, again, this is like a hard thing to choose, but I'll just say it's a tie. It's between Blue Bayou and Dear Evan Hansen. Blue Bayou because it's a focus feature. And I'm usually pleasantly surprised, even if I think they're going to be a tough sit. Like I always like them. That was not the case here. We also talked about this on a previous pod with Dear Evan Hansen, covered on our September release episode. And Dear Evan Hansen, because I love the soundtrack a lot from the Broadway performance, and this movie just flopped on almost every account. This is still in the awards conversation, so I'm curious if the anonymous ones will make it through. But this is a memorable, but in a very bad way, kind of movie. Okay, what is one movie you wish you could push into the Oscar race? Mine is Barb and Star Go to Vista del Mar. 
mainly because the release date kind of put it in between the past two award seasons, so it's it never showed up anywhere. I'm glad that at one of the critic circles it won production design, mm-hmm. which was fantastic. I think it like wins best comedy of the year for me. As much as 2021 had a lot of big movie experiences that were enjoyable, I think this was a movie that was funny and didn't take itself seriously at all. And that's why I love it so much. And that's also what I needed this year. So if I could, I guess I don't know what category, but honestly, just put it in anywhere just for fun. Uh, we mm-hmm. could do costumes. Culottes are important to the story. So they're essential. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> There's some fun music too, but I would give it costume design. I love this movie. I watched it three times this year, actually. That was like one of the illuminating (laughs) things about my letterbox stats. It was like most watched films. The Awful Truth, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. (laughs) Like I am a woman of many multitudes, but yeah, I love it. It's, It's such a good fearless comedy. Oh my God. My answer here is like a more serious one, and that's just that I wish that Netflix would push passing into like their contenders. Please remove Don't Look Up. Like let passing take its place. It's like one of the most tense movies I've seen all year. You know, while I prefer The Power of the Dog, I think that passing deserves to be a contender. Amazing performances, especially from Ruth Negga, Tessa Thompson. I think it's a beautiful film. Also by a first-time filmmaker, Rebecca Hall. It's like, please, let's elevate these stories. And I know that like, I'm going to try to do that, but I am not the Netflix machine and I can only do so much. And then if you could give any of the movies that we've talked about today one Oscar, what would it be? Again, no surprise. I would give Best Director to Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog. If I could pick any Oscar to give anyone this whole year, that's what it would be. Wow. Oh, that's a good question. Honestly, that's probably mine too. As much as I want Denis to have an Oscar, I don't want him to beat out Jane for it. Love that. (laughs) But I think if I was giving any of these movies an Oscar, I would give it to The Worst Person in the World for International Feature. That's also a good pick. Also, give it a Best Picture nom just because. Mm -hmm. Screenplay. Renata for Best Actress. Yes, exactly. Supporting Actor. Like, ugh, it's so Mm -hmm. good. All right, are you ready for our top five hottest characters list? (laughs) Let's do this. Okay. So first, before we count down our five, we can go through some honorable mentions that we have. Do you have any honorable mentions? And similarly, I will say to Smasher Pass, this is the character. Yes, the actor obviously influences our decisions, but the character has to be considered in your decision making. I had to remind myself of that a couple times when I was doing this list. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I think all of mine still work as characters. It's like mostly swayed by the actor. I have a few honorable mentions. I'm going to say Paul Mezcal and The Lost Daughter. Okay, good one. Angelina Jolie in Those Who Wish Me Dead. She's a badass in this movie, and it's great. Also, Jamie Dornan in Barb and Sargo de Vistel del Mar. And then my fun honorable mention, Are You Sitting Down? I am sitting. Is Megan Fox in Till Death. (laughs) I mean, yes. So I didn't put any women on my list because it really would have been unfair and they would have taken all the spots. Yeah. But if I did, (laughs) Megan Fox would be on there for sure. (laughs) She looks so good until death and in everything she's ever been in. That movie is so cracked, though. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. Is it a bracelet or a necklace that she like can't get off? The necklace, yeah. Yeah, the necklace. Love Megan Fox. Support her in everything that she's ever done. So who are your honorable mentions? Well, okay. I feel like I need to redo my list if we're including women, but I'm just going to stick with the list that I made. So I have Adam Driver in a net. He didn't make my top five. <laughs> oh my God, surprising. I know. I had to think about Henry McHenry as a character and it just like, no. Yeah. Um, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II in Candyman. Okay. Before he goes off the rails. Terrifying, I was going to say. <laughs> before before he goes off the rails, like when he's just the hot artist. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy Irons in House of Gucci. <laughs> oh my god. What? Oh you, made, you made a comment on our previous episode about how, you know, being close to death has not stopped me before. Jeremy Irons is, <laughs> I don't know, he's like very distinguished. Yeah, he's very elegant. Yeah, he's 73. That reminds me of this I'm Sorry episode where she's helping out her recently divorced friend on a dating app. And she's like, wait, these men, what is your age range? And like, she is you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Okay, what is your number five? My number five is Anthony Ramos as Usnavi in, in The Heights. That's a good pick. Another movie that I wish could get pushed into the Oscar race, actually. Mm-hmm. Who's your five? My number five, we have a tie. Jamie Dornan in Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar and Jamie Dornan in Belfast. <laughs> I wanted to put two singing Dornans on my list, but I wasn't sure like which way to go. If I wanted to go with like the fun one mm-hmm. or if I wanted to go with like the more serious Dilf one. So I picked both. I went fun because they also have a threesome with Annie and Kristen. So it's like... <laughs> They take it there. That is so good. (laughs) So my number four is Dev Patel in The Green Knight. He'll show up later on my list. It's a good pick. We have some good overlap. Yeah. My number four is Anders Danielson Lee as Axel in The Worst Person in the World. (gasps) Oh, wow. These are some dark choices. (laughs) Really? I just like him. He's like, he's an older artist. I get why she sure. I get why she likes him. He's very mm-hmm. wise. He's Let's very hot. Be clear here, he's like in his forties, not seventies. So old is relative here. Very true. My number three is Philemon Chambers, who plays Nick in Single All the Way. Oh, okay. Did you see this? I did watch it. Yeah. I like forgot all about some like some of the deep cut options, but he's a good one. He was my favorite part of the movie. He was my favorite character. He, yeah. I think he's just the most genuine person and he would be an incredible partner. He's also like super sweet. His act of love at the end is just made me sob. Um, he's probably my favorite part of this movie too, besides Jennifer Coolidge, of course. Definitely. Okay. My number three, I have another tie. Are these all ties? No, they're not. They're <laughs> not but I felt like it was good to have them tied because they're both British the first one is James Bond, played by Daniel Craig in No Time to Die. Don't need to explain mm-hmm. that one. And Dev Patel in The Green Knight, who plays Sir Gawain. Okay. I like those. People talked about Dev Patel playing Bond as like a possible option. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was good to have them both here. And I didn't want to kick anyone out of my list. So there we go. <laughs> He's a bit of a ne'er-do-well, but again, hasn't stopped me before. So yeah. My number two, no surprise, Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides in Dune. 
Wait, Timmy's your number two. This is so crazy. Yeah. This number one is going to shock people. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> well, my number two is Oscar Isaac as Timmy's dad, Duke Leto in, in Dune. Okay. I like that. Nice little pairing. Yeah. <laughs> Greatest beard we saw on film this year. Yep. Agreed. Okay. Who is this number one? <laughs> yeah. My number one is from No Time to Die. It's not Daniel and it's not Rami. It's Ana de Armas. Oh. She is stunning. Like that gown is just seared into my mind. I thought you were going to pick Leia Seydoux when you said No Time to Die, who also would be a good oh. pick. She's, but, yeah, yeah, she's beautiful. Anna just steals the screen and she's only mm-hmm. on it for like 10 minutes. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I want more of this. And now we don't have deep water and like, uh. When deep yeah. water comes out next year, I am reserving the number one <laughs> slot on this list for Jacob Elordi in deep water. <laughs> I have the book too. I'm ready to read it. So oh we God. just need a release date. Wait, I have to ask you, where is Mike Feist? Oh, see, I didn't love him that much. He could have been honorable mention. Okay. I'm not obsessed did. with him like everybody else's, though. Okay, good. So who is your number one? Is it Bradley Cooper? It is. Do you want to guess which movie? <laughs> it has to be Licorice Pizza. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. It is Bradley Cooper <laughs> as John Peters in Licorice Pizza. Now, I know this will scare people because he's not, you know, He's great, a little chaotic. Jeez. But just like when I saw him for the first time in a movie again, like since A Star is Born, I fully lost control of my mouth like of my body in this theater i was like he's back again like (laughs) oh well in the see-through shirt like he's so tan it was almost like a star is born like i wish he could have had the star is born hair and not had Mm -hmm. the weird 70s haircut but like yeah him trudging up the hill him in the car like i would oh my god we really shouldn't go here but if i was driving that car i would absolutely offer to let him help me drive the car like that i was i was dying and i know it's supposed to be like not good but i was very into it and i was very happy with his performance he's so chaotic and scary but also just so hot so i'm at a loss here torn over what to do so i put him at number one (laughs) I'm surprised Sean Penn from Licorice Pizza didn't make your cut either. Why would he make my list? Why wouldn't he? He's not unattractive. He's like a little too weathered and drunk for me. I think like Bradley Cooper is so chaotic. It was also like vintage Cooper. Like Mm -hmm. I'm back to being in Wedding Crashers and The Hangover. Like absolute asshat, awful person that it like warmed my heart a little bit. Oh my god. To when I loved him in the hangover and the A team. Like yes, I saw the A team. Wow. I want him to ask me my zodiac sign, all of it. What kind of if I like peanut butter sandwiches. He's in his forties also, so not a seventy year old. <laughs> <laughs> not dying. <A> frail. <laughs> Okay, so that was our year-end wrap-up. That was very chaotic. I feel like last year it was like much more subdued. <laughs> this year was a little nuts, but that's okay. I think overall it was a great movie year. I loved like being back at the movie theater, watching great movies at home, watching new classics for the first time, and again, like getting that, wow, I'm watching a movie feeling a handful of times. Always going to be grateful for that. And I'm looking forward to 2022 and all the new movies we're going to have. We still have some that were delayed again. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, not as many as this year. But yeah, I'm hopeful for where movies are going. And 
I'm glad we got some stellar ones this year. Me too. And we'll definitely have to have another like most anticipated movies of the year episode soon. But Mm -hmm. for our first episode of 2022, we will be discussing and reviewing Licorice Pizza, Paul Thomas Anderson's latest film and giving a ranking of our top three PTA movies. We will be joined for this episode by Ryan McQuaid of In Session Film. We were on his show for Chasing the Gold. Big PTA fan. Cannot wait to have him on. Lots of good insight. And this movie is in theaters everywhere. So if you're able to go see it, go see it. We both recommend it. And we'll be breaking all of it down next week. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye.